Our text this morning, as we hear from the living God and his word, is Hebrews 11, verses 5 and 6. And in connection with that, Sean read a few moments ago Genesis 5, verses 1 to 32 as well. And we'll be looking at both of those texts, beginning with the Genesis passage in a moment. So please have your Bible open there, if you would, as we begin. This morning, in our continuing study of Hebrews, we come to the mysterious and I think beautiful account of Enoch. The sermon this morning will be in three parts. First, we'll consider the example of faith that we find in Enoch as we look at Genesis 5, and then at how the pastor interprets that Enoch episode in Hebrews 11, verses 5 and 6a. Secondly, With the example of Enoch's faith in view, we'll then consider the essence of faith as the pastor explains it in Hebrews 11, verse 6b, the second part of verse 6. And then thirdly, though only very briefly at the end, we'll consider the end of faith as we reflect on the examples of both Abel and Enoch. So the example of faith, the essence of faith, and the end of faith will be our roadmap this morning, and we begin now by turning back to Genesis 5 and considering the example of faith we see in Enoch. My wife Emily actually suggested this week that surely this would be one of the shortest sermons I've ever preached, since in the Old Testament, the entire sum of what is told of Enoch is found in four verses in Genesis chapter 5 consisting of 51 words in the English. Look with me now there at Genesis 5, verses 21 to 24. This is Genesis 5, verses 21 to 24. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Enoch were 365 years. And then here's the sum of the matter in verse 24. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. There is something special about Enoch. That much seems obvious simply from the way in which, as one author puts it, This astonishing paragraph shines like a brilliant star above the earthly record of this chapter. That's why I wanted the entire chapter to be read a few minutes ago. Genesis chapter 5 is the genealogy that extends from Adam through Seth onto Moses, or Noah, excuse me. It has a ten-generation structure just as the genealogy later in Genesis chapter 11 that moves from Shem to Abram also has a ten-generation structure. In other words, as a whole unit, the genealogy is obviously carefully structured, but then within that, with each generation, there's a very regular pattern as well. You heard that earlier in what Sean read. The age of each patriarch at the time of the firstborn is stated followed by the number of years the patriarch lived after the birth, followed by the total years of his life, concluding with the words, and he died. That's the pattern set 
right at the beginning with Adam and his son Seth. Just take the account of Seth, beginning in verse 6 of Genesis 5. When Seth had lived 105 years, he fathered Enosh. Seth lived, after he fathered Enosh, 807 years, and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Seth were 912 years, and he died. Then it's the same with Enosh. When Enosh had lived 90 years, he fathered Canaan. Enosh lived after he fathered Canaan 815 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Enosh were 905 years and he died. It's then the same with Mahalalel and he died. And then Jared and he died. And then later with Methuselah and he died and Lamech and he died until we come to Noah at the end of the chapter, and the point is they all died. Now, we're not in a Genesis sermon series here, but think about it. What might be the possible significance of reading those words over and over and over again at this very point in Genesis? Why bother saying, as the author does here, and he died, and he died, and he died? Well, maybe it's because their death is the point. Maybe it's because however you approach the fact that the average lifespan of the patriarchs here is said to approach a millennium, the point is that mankind is now under the curse of death as history continues forward. We are only two chapters here beyond the fall. What the Lord said would happen is happening. The wages of sin is death, brothers and sisters, and so even as we do find reasons to hope for God's salvation in these earliest chapters of Genesis, the overall picture coming into focus here in Genesis chapter 5 is that death now reigns on the earth. And I don't care how long you live at death, Life is short for all, is it not? And so Genesis chapter 5 is marked by this dark rhythm of Seth's genealogy, with one exception. The seventh generation from Adam and the man Enoch. And there are two statements that the scriptural text makes about Enoch that distinguish him from all the others here in Genesis chapter 5, and it's those two statements that then catch the attention of the pastor writing Hebrews, as we'll see. The first statement appears twice in verse 22 and verse 24. Both times, instead of saying that Enoch lived, as was stated concerning all the other patriarchs in the chapter, it doesn't say that. It says, Enoch walked with God. There was, firstly, something important to say about the course of Enoch's life that set him apart somehow. And then secondly, there was something important to say about the end of Enoch's life. The second statement is in the end of verse 24, where it says, And he was not, for God took him. Enoch walked with God, and Enoch was not, for God took him. What are we to make of it? 
Well, our first clue is going to be how those two statements concerning Enoch are rendered in the Greek translation of the Old Testament that we call the Septuagint. Now, I know you don't have that in front of you, but in this case, this matters for our purposes because as we've seen several times before in this series, the pastor writing Hebrews clearly is reading the Greek version of the Old Testament, the Greek Septuagint, when he quotes the scriptures. And here in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 5, the same is again the case. Where in the Hebrew text of Genesis we read twice that Enoch walked with God in verses 22 and 24 of Genesis 5, the Greek Septuagint translation has in both of those places Enoch pleased God. And then where the Hebrew text of Genesis has the words, and he was not, for God took him, the Septuagint reads, and he was not found because God took him. So Hebrews chapter 11 verse 5 begins then with the Septuagint's version of Enoch's remarkable end. The pastor writes in Hebrews 11 verse 5, By faith Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. And the, just the last part of verse 5 there, and he was not found because God had taken him. That is the pastor writing Hebrews, quoting verbatim from the Greek Septuagint text of Genesis 5 verse 24. And lest what it means to say that Enoch was not found because God had taken him, lest that be thought unclear, in the first part of verse 5, the pastor writing Hebrews makes very clear what that Genesis text intimates. It means Enoch didn't die. In the beginning of verse 5 of Hebrews 11, the pastor says, Enoch was taken up so that, meaning with the result that, he should not see, which means he should not experience death. That's what Genesis 5 verse 24 means. Enoch's being taken by God was a translation, if you will, that bypassed the death. The death that is now incumbent on all persons after the fall. The very point that the genealogy in Genesis is driving home for us here, I think. Enoch did not experience that death. How are we to explain that? Well, probably we can't. I think about the only thing we can say is that the Greek verb translated here in verse 5 as taken indicates a change of place, a removal from one location to another. Enoch was removed, brothers and sisters, and I don't know how exactly, in itself, the verb does not imply an upward direction necessarily, though that is how it's translated in the beginning of verse 5 of Hebrews 11. It's simply not something we're told with any specificity. I rather like the way that the New English Bible renders this 
when it says Enoch was carried away to another life. Carried away to another life. It simply astonishes, does it not, to think that this man, seventh from Adam, was removed from this earthly scene to the presence of God himself, brothers and sisters. He was not, for God took him. But why? What was the reason God did that? Here again, what is implicit in the Genesis account is made explicit by the pastor writing Hebrews. Enoch was taken because of his faith. We see that at the very beginning and the very end of verse 5 in Hebrews 11. Look there again. The verse starts by saying, By faith, Enoch was taken up. Only that cannot mean, of course, that Enoch's translation was in some way an act of his faith. Obviously, Enoch did not take himself up to life with the Lord. In this case, by faith must mean something like because of faith. That is, Enoch was taken because of his life of faith, because he lived in obedient dependence upon God's power and promises, as we discussed two weeks ago at the beginning of chapter 11. And in fact, that is explicitly what the pastor says at the end of verse 5. Look at the second sentence in verse 5 as the ESV translates it. After quoting from Genesis, the pastor says, Now, and I think a better translation of the Greek there would be, Because Enoch was taken up because, before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. Now, two weeks ago, when we looked at verse 2 of Hebrews 11, we heard the pastor there explain that it was by faith that the people of old received their commendation. Here we find that Enoch had been so commended during his life. In other words, he was a man of faith. And remember, earlier we said that the wording Enoch pleased God was the Septuagint's translation of the Hebrew wording, Enoch walked with God. The pastor here is using the Septuagint's wording. And it is to say the same thing as the Hebrew text of Genesis, just in other words. To say that Enoch walked with God means Enoch pleased God, and vice versa. The whole point is, Enoch lived by faith. Now, I realize that neither the Hebrew nor the Greek version of the Old Testament actually says that, but they don't have to, you see, because the point is that that's clear from the fact that Enoch walked with or pleased God. Do you remember Hebrews 10, verse 38, where the pastor quoted from Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4, to start us off on this study of faith here? Look back there, if you can, at Hebrews 10, verse 38. My righteous one shall live by faith, God says, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. Now there's the connection. To say that God has no pleasure 
when we shrink back from the life of faith, means that God is pleased when the opposite is true, when we do live by faith. This is the conclusion the pastor himself reaches in verse 6a of Hebrews 11. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. So it's a little tricky at first, but do you see how the logic runs here in Hebrews? Genesis says Enoch walked with God. Two times it says that. According to the Greek Septuagint of that passage, that means Enoch pleased God. That's the pastor's understanding as well. But then according to Habakkuk, the one who pleases God is the one who lives by faith. Ergo, Enoch lived by faith. And in his case, that faith was the reason God took him, brothers and sisters, by faith, Enoch was taken up. And no, we do not know anything else about Enoch, save the fact that the New Testament book of Jude, verse 14, says Enoch prophesied judgment against the ungodly. But other than that one other reference, we know nothing. Now, as you can well imagine, there has been a vast amount of speculation concerning Enoch, especially in Jewish interpretive traditions. There are whole books called First and Second Enoch, for example, where Enoch is a, is a, a figure, uh, a prophetic figure. He was a popular figure in Jewish writing of, of the last few centuries before Jesus. And then for some while after, whole books were written, apocryphal books, written as though by Enoch, prophesying events many centuries hence. But it's significant that none of that's in view here. Because even though some of those writings would likely have been known in the first century, even to the church receiving this this. Hebrews sermon, the pastor writing Hebrews turns away from them as he insists simply on what Genesis chapter 5 verse 24 says, Enoch pleased God, which means Enoch lived by faith. He walked with God, brothers and sisters. His life was lived in trust and obedience toward the Lord. And I do not know if maybe you just feel frustrated. Perhaps. Perhaps you feel frustrated that we cannot say anything more specific about Enoch than that. You would be right to point to the fact that Enoch stands out in Hebrews 11 precisely because nothing further is said about him. Yet, in this, the pastor reflects the Genesis text itself. And as I've thought about it, I've wondered if perhaps that isn't in some way the point. Perhaps what we're meant to understand from the example of Enoch is simply this, that the entire sum of a person's life reduces to the question of faith. Does that make sense? Perhaps from how Enoch is presented in Scripture, 
what we're meant to take away is that from the perspective of eternity, nothing else matters. Because faith is everything. Do you believe that? Do you believe that in the end, the entire sum of a person's life, the entire sum of your life, reduces to the question of faith? That it's all about whether or not we live by faith, whether or not God takes pleasure in us, whether or not we walk with the Lord? Think about that. In New Testament terms, not that it's different, just that this is how the New Testament presents it. In New Testament terms, what this looks like, I think, is what Paul talks about, for example, in Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 and following. Listen to this. Paul writes in Galatians 5, verse 16, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify, gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, the apostle continues, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Oh. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And here it is. Here's what I think is the New Testament equivalent to Enoch's walking with God. It's verse 25 of Galatians 5. Paul says, If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. That's what walking with God looks like, dear friends. It looks like fellowship that brings forth righteousness. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. I like how one preacher puts it, thinking about Enoch, quote, matching God stride for stride along the path of life while headed for the city of God, produced in Enoch a righteous walk. That's not stretching things, I don't think. That's simply what it means to walk with God, to please God. So it is to be with us as we walk with the Spirit of God. In the end, it's the only thing that matters. Listen to just one more text on this before we move on. An Old Testament text this time. Other than Genesis chapter 6 verse 9, which says that Noah also walked with God, I can find only one other Old Testament passage 
in which the expression to walk with God occurs. And that's Malachi chapter 2, verse 6. Listen to it. Now, Malachi chapter 2, verse 6 is speaking of Levi. But just listen for what walking with God entails here. Malachi 2, verse 6. True instruction was in his mouth, that's Levi's mouth, and no wrong was found on his lips, and here it is. He walked with me in peace and uprightness, and he turned many from iniquity. Did you hear it? He walked with me in peace and uprightness. Now, in other words, there's fellowship and there's righteousness. And I could just go right back to Galatians 5 all over again. This is what it means to walk with God, brothers and sisters. That's what pleases God, for it is the life of faith. Now, such is the example of faith that we find in Enoch, as the pastor explains it there in verse 5. Such faith must characterize us, dear friends, for as verse 6a says, without faith it is impossible to please God. But now why is that? Why is God pleased when he sees such faith? Verse 6b tells us, and we turn now in the sermon to focus secondly on this, the essence of faith. Look at verse 6 once more as I read it again. Without faith it is impossible to please him, the pastor says, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. This is the essence of faith. And we don't have a lot of time here, so let me cut right to the chase. Here's how I understand this part of verse 6. I think verse 6 can be put this way. Faith pleases God because faith is living in light of the reality of who God actually is. I'll say it again. As I read it, verse 6 is saying that faith pleases God because Faith is living in light of the reality of who God actually is. Because when we do that, when we live in light of the reality of who God actually is, that honors God, do you see? And God is well pleased. That's how I understand verse 6. In other words, I do not think Verse 6 here is speaking about God simply as a category or metaphysical concept, as if the point is that the first step towards faith is believing that a God exists. I don't think that's the point here. The pastor is not suddenly now in the middle of Hebrews for his readers making a statement about theism as opposed to atheism. Certainly it's true that one cannot have faith without assenting to the fact that a divine being exists. But that's not the point the pastor's making. In the context of Hebrews, God can only mean this God, the God of the Bible, the God who spoke to our fathers, 
who we're now thinking about, spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days has spoken to us by his son. Right? I like how one author puts it. Certainly for this writer, the word theos, God, denotes no mere concept or category. To say that this God is, is necessarily to indicate much more than the mere fact of existence. This God is living and active, faithful to his self-revelation. To say that this God is, in the context of Hebrews 11, is less like saying that there is such a thing as fire and more like saying, that the room in which we are standing is on fire. This God is never an inert quantity, but a presence in action as Lord, Yahweh. I would go so far, in fact, friends, to suggest that the original audience of Hebrews could not help but have seen a connection here to the great statement God himself made to Moses at the burning bush in Exodus 3, verse 14, where having just been told to go down to Egypt and confront Pharaoh, Moses asks God, what is your name? And God answers him saying, I am who I am. Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Now, in the Greek Septuagint, the link is even more explicit because in the Septuagint, Exodus 3 verse 14 says, tell them, I am the one who exists. Tell them, I am the one who exists. It is that very language the pastor employs here in verse 6. Whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists. You see, the essence of faith must be to identify the God of the Bible, the Lord who spoke to Moses from the burning bush as the one true God. Faith must be in him if it is to be saving faith. Over and over in the scriptures, the Lord says, I am God and there is no other. And if that's the case, then the rest must follow. For have we not been seen all through Hebrews that it is this God who made a promise and who in fact swore an oath to bring that promise about, who fulfilled that oath, when his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, was made our great high priest in accordance with Psalm 110 verse 4, of course that's what we've seen. It's the heartbeat of Hebrews. And what is it that this God has promised? What is the reward that this God has, has held out to us? Of which the pastor speaks in verse 6 of our text this morning. We don't have to guess. It's the same reward that was mentioned in chapter 10, verse 35. It's salvation. Life with God in a place. It's the object of our hope. Our inheritance in the heavenly homeland and the city of God. A hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Or to put it as simply as I can, the reward desired by those who seek him is the joy of finding him.
he himself proves to be their exceeding great reward. What greater reward could we ever desire than God himself? This is why faith pleases God. Because it's living in light of the reality of who God actually is, including what God has actually promised. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. To live by faith is to live with anticipation of receiving what God has promised because we are confident in him. Here's how one commentator puts it. The faithful life the faithful live, excuse me, the faithful live with anticipation of receiving what God has promised because of their absolute confidence in the character of God. Faith rests securely on his faithfulness and power. According to verse 6 itself, to live by faith, to believe these things, means to draw near in worship and service to seek him in our whole lives. Of course it does. For to live by faith is to act as if God is real and his promises are certain. Because he is and they are. Which is why as we close now, I want briefly to comment on the end of faith. I take it as evident here that the point of Enoch's example is not that the pastor expects us to escape death in the way Enoch did. Unless the Lord returns first, you and I, like all the other examples of faith in Hebrews chapter 11, will see death. For all the advances of science and modern medicine, the deathly rhythm of Seth's genealogy continues unabated. Our lives will span a number of years, and then we, too, shall die. No, the point is not that if we have faith, we, too, will escape dying. But the point is that in the end, the life to which Enoch was taken will be our life also. Earlier I said the account of Enoch shines like a brilliant star above the earthly record of Genesis 5. But now let me tell you why. I think the reason is that the Lord meant for Enoch in his own day and in ours to testify powerfully to the end of faith. In the midst of death, to shine forth the truth that there is a life after death where God himself awaits us. Yes, God spared Enoch death. But Enoch wasn't the first example of faith, was he? Abel was, and Abel was martyred for that faith. In some profound sense, it seems to me we are to identify with both Abel and Enoch. For we all, like Abel, will die without receiving the fullness of what God has promised. And yet, wonder of wonders, we all, like Enoch, will one day 
triumph over death. Behold, I tell you a mystery, the Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, beginning in verse 50. We shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O oh, death, where is your victory? O oh, death, where is your sting? Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.